For it was fitting for him, who for him and through whom all things exist, and bringing many sons of glory, to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. He is the pioneer of their salvation, our salvation. The one who made all things exist, and the one that all things exist for, is the one that blazed the trail into salvation for us. Now, we've already heard that term, but he's repeating it. Why? Because before, it was emphasizing the fact that as the Son of God, as God, He has made a path into heaven for you. But now he's making the point that as a man, He has blazed the trail into heaven for you. Because... He is able to perfect the salvation for us that no human has ever been able to do. Adam was good and failed to maintain his presence in heaven. No human is good. Therefore, no human can get into heaven. Only the righteous go to heaven, Jesus said. And that's why all the, every Jew was like, well, then we're screwed. Like, there's nobody, because Jesus is basically making the point that the only way you can get into heaven is if you're perfect and you're sinless. And they immediately led the Jews to ask the question, well, then who can get into heaven? The only the perfect people. Well, then that means Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life, which means he's the only one that can get to heaven on his own. But the beauty of him is that he died for us. So he covers us with his blood, his payment for death, his payment for sin, And now we are declared perfect and righteous. So we are now able to follow his path into heaven. And then when we get to heaven, he will finish the work that he began in us so that we will become what we have been declared. And the declaration will match up with the reality. Because that's the only way that righteous people can get to heaven. And so what makes him the pioneer? He did what no human can do. He took creation back. And the only way you can take creation back is by defeating death and defeating the devil, which no human can do. Now, in verse 10 it says that Jesus, who is the pioneer of their salvation, was made perfect through suffering. Now, wasn't Jesus already perfect? How did he become made perfect? Now, if you look at perfect in the Webster Dictionary, it has a very American definition. To be perfect... (laughs) To be perfect in everything, a perfect intelligence, a perfect life, a perfect whatever, that there's nothing wrong whatsoever, which implies to be made perfect meant that you weren't perfect at one time, which means something was wrong with you. So that for Jesus to be made perfect meant that he wasn't perfect, and therefore there's something wrong with him, and then, but that's not what the word means. Remember, words change over time in cultures. So if you understand the word perfect here, it means to be complete, to finish. So it's not that Jesus was lacking and made perfect. It's that Jesus' mission was not complete. His mission wasn't perfected. It wasn't finished. Because he had to suffer for us. And once he suffered, then he was made perfect. He was made complete. Now you can say, it is finished. And that's what the word perfect meant. Which is a very important point, because with the animal sacrifices, they weren't complete. Because he had to do it again and again. And so here's the other beauty of it all. It's not that Jesus just came to blaze your trail into heaven. It's not that he just came to represent you. But he completed all things. He's completed salvation in a way that nobody else could. For indeed, 
He who makes holy and those being made holy have the same origin. So he is the one that makes all this holy. The word holy just means separate from. To separate us from sin. To separate us from the world. To separate us from death. To separate us from the world. To the devil. All those things. So he is the one that made us holy. And the one who is being made holy, us, have the same origin. Now we tap back into Psalm 8. What is man that you even consider him after what we've done to your creation? So the one who makes us holy, Jesus, and the one who is being made holy, us, have the same origin. And what is that origin? We're both human. So that Jesus now stands in the midst of all of us and he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. What are we that God would become a human, die our punishment, and defeat death, and then stoop down and carry us into that victory when we don't deserve it? And stand there in the midst of all that evil and filth and rebellion and say, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother and sisters because I came to be you, for you, to deliver you into what only I can accomplish for you and what you were meant to be all along. Which is all the more reason of how can you stand in the presence of people in the world and then look at them and condemn them and be ashamed of them. When Jesus stood in far greater filth and said, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother and sisters. It doesn't mean you have to prove of them. It doesn't mean that they're pleasing to God. It doesn't mean that they're righteous. It doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean that you don't... It just means you don't condemn. You don't judge. You don't say, oh, I'm too good for that. That's self-righteousness. And so, he's not ashamed. I mean, think about that. I mean, we can't really truly appreciate what it's like to be a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. It's like the Dr. Pepper commercial. Okay? And we just get used to it. We rationalize it in our life. We don't... We say, oh, yeah, but it's just a movie. It's just a show. It's just a... And when we do get horrified, we don't really get horrified in the same way. Can you imagine being the almighty living God who has never known sin? And he looks down at this. And the horror and the vileness, the wrath that he feels. And yet despite that, he sends his son and his son says, I'm not ashamed to be one of you. That's love. That's love. Which of the angels ever did that for you? Did Allah ever do that for you? Did Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, the triad of the Hindu gods ever do that for you? Did your DNA and atheism ever do that for you? I mean, how well is your DNA? Yeah, maybe we'll all be perfected in several billion years of evolution. But what about now in my life? Which of them have ever done that? I'm not ashamed to call your brothers and sisters. Go back and read the First Testament and look at all the horrific things that Israel does. 
vile things, bestiality, child sacrifice, rape, idolatry. Everyone. It says that they were actually worse than even the Canaanites. And Jesus becomes an Israelite. He becomes ultimate Israel. He becomes true Israel. And yet he still claims them as his own. Verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And again, he says, I will be confident in him. And again, here I am with my children and God has given me. Now, in verse 12, he quotes Psalm 22, 22, Isaiah 8, 17 and Isaiah 8, 18. Psalm 22 has the same passage where Jesus is on the cross and quotes that. So if you go, so Matthew 27, verse 46 is where you see that. So this already shows that Jesus sees Psalm 22 as typology of himself. Because he, he doesn't quote the passage that Hebrews quotes. He quotes the passage, um, a different verse from the same chapter. So if you turn to Matthew 20, 27, verse 46. Oh, 27, sorry. I just turned to 20, 27, verse 46. I just turned to 24. I was like, that's not right. Um, verse 46. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus shouted out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lemon, Shabakna, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the psalmist quotes chapter 22, but he quotes a different part. I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. So by Jesus quoting from Psalm 22, he's letting you know he sees it as a part of the typology of himself as a Davidic king who is God. But he quotes the part where he's being forsaken by God because of the sins that he's taken upon himself. The author of Hebrews then quotes a little bit later in 22, and he says that Jesus is proclaiming that he is one of our brothers. So you put it all together, and he has become the forsaken on our behalf so that he can take God and put it into our midst and say, I'm not ashamed. The ultimate David, the ultimate Adam, the ultimate Israel, took the forsaking of God upon himself so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken by God. Then, by defeating the penalty of death, he then comes back and stands in our midst and says, I'm not ashamed to accept you into my family because I was forsook for you so that you wouldn't have to be forsaken by God. That's the context. So Jesus is quoting the forsaking part, and Hebrews is quoting we are accepted part, in order to make that point. To make that point. That Jesus is the ultimate man who is able to do what no human was able to do. Then he quotes Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 17. The context of Isaiah's message um, is that the king has been rejected, um, that God has rejected the king and the people. And so Isaiah writes this message of rejection. I've rejected the king because he's failed to be a shepherd. I've rejected the people. And I'm going to write it on a seal. I'm going to seal it up and make sure that you know you're going to be punished. And so Isaiah then says that he's going to trust in Yahweh and await the fulfillment of the message. 
The point is, God has just rejected, just forsake Israel and the king and saying, I will have nothing to do with you anymore because of sin. But Israel's thinking, oh my gosh, that's so horrible, especially since God made promises that he would never forsake us. And he made promises in the prophets that he would one day come and be our husband and restore us back to the land. And so Isaiah finishes by saying, I will await the day that we are no longer forsaken. And the author of Hebrews quotes Isaiah as Jesus speaking and says, that day has come. Because Jesus was forsaken for us and now comes and he says, you're no longer forsaken, my brothers and sisters, because I'm not ashamed to call you. So that's how he fulfills Isaiah 18, 17. Or 8, 17. Then he quotes 18, 18. And then he says, you're the name, Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And Yahweh gave him two sons. And the son's name was to be a remnant will return and quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. So basically it's two sons that will be the promise that one day God will restore them. So Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. But Isaiah can never be Yahweh's salvation because he's a sinner. So a descendant of Isaiah has to, not literally biologically, but in the same nation. The sons were to be promises that a remnant will be restored. Remnant just means the leftover who are still faithful. And so Christ fulfills that because he becomes the fulfillment of what their names mean. Their names were promises. Yahweh is salvation. A remnant will return. Quick to the spoils or the blessings of God. Christmas Day. First one running down those steps and grabbing those presents. Those are the promises. And so by the author of Hebrews, he's quoting, he says, Jesus is Yahweh's salvation. Jesus is the remnant of God who restores the remnant. Jesus is the one who allows you to quickly come to the blessings of God and the spoils. In order to make the point that Jesus is Israel. So he's made the point that Jesus is the ultimate Adam, the human who can take back the rulership of the planet that Adam lost. But now he's making the point that Jesus is the ultimate Israel because Israel was meant to be the blessings of God, to be blessed by God, to be connected to God in no way that nobody else could be. But they failed to do that. So you see what he's doing? He's proven that Jesus is God. Verses 1 through 4, chapter 1. He's now shown you that Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king, the rest of chapter 1. He's now shown you that Jesus is the ultimate Adam, but he's now showing you that Jesus is also the ultimate Israel. Because everything in the First Testament is about Jesus. They were only meant to be pictures of the Christ that were to come. And why did they fail to be fully developed in the picture? Because only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can do it. Any questions? Comments? <laughs> this is all God. He's the one that wove it all together. I'll give you a little time to dwell on that, meditate on it. Mm-hmm. For the Jewish people, um, you know, the Day of Atonement, 
and 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 begging God that their names would be written into the mm-hmm. into the book of life. Mm-hmm. And 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 the, and the missing part and there is a recognition of sin. Mm-hmm. You're a sinner. It's kind of corporate. And then there's but then there's uh, just the going to God, begging for his mercy, like saying, you're merciful. You know, you said as far as the east is from the west, so our sins are removed from us. But that whole middle part of what mm. you're sacrificing, there's a whole gob of it that's just left out. By prayer and repentance yeah. and righteous deeds, we are asking that you, because you're merciful, you're going to accept us and write us in the book of life. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's, it's so, I mean, it's like all of us, all of us do mm-hmm. that. I mean, unless we have Jesus. So, um, this is—I don't know. I'm just in awe of, of, of God, <coughs> and that Jesus is the answer. Yeah. I mean, He is. He is the. Judaism has a rich, rich history of acknowledging that God is merciful, God is compassionate, God is forgiving. I mean, you read through the First Testament, you see a lot of judgments and a lot of harshness, but you always think think about the things that God could have done and didn't do, and how much grace and how much patience and how much... Forgiveness go and they do they 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 get that unlike many other religions they God is this powerful being a king that you fear, but in Judaism they've acknowledged that God is merciful God is compassionate that they're begging for that mercy they're begging for that compassion as you've mentioned the 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 problem is is they're like you said they're missing that connection they, because at the same time they also recognize because God Yahweh is so unlike us. There's this huge rift, this huge gap, and they should see that. We should see that. That was the whole point of the tabernacle. The point of the tabernacle was there was one gate into the thing, and the only way you could get into that gate was an animal sacrifice, and and, and and you had to be even more holy and more sanctified just to get into the, the holy place. And then you had to be super holy just to get into the, the, the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest could do that once a year. And, and even then he's scared to death. He's going to be struck down dead because he just does one teeny little thing in the ritual wrong. And there's this begging God, please don't kill us. But we know you won't because you've proven that year after year after year after year. The whole point of that tabernacle was you are separated from God. You're, that was the point of the tabernacle. You are completely, utterly separated from God. You have no hope of ever getting to him. But the cool thing about the tabernacle was there still was a gate and there was still sacrifice. He could have built a tabernacle without a gate and without an altar and could have said, you're screwed, you're on your own. But there was a gate and there was a sacrifice and that's why John the baptizer says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus says, I am the gate. And then what happens when he dies on the cross? The veil is completely ripped open in the Holy of Holies. And he's blazed the trail for us into heaven. And that's the thing. No wonder the Jews stopped saying the name of Yahweh. Because they began to, they over years, you sin and do the things that they did. And you have a, we've lost our history of sin as a people group. We, I think a lot of us are very aware of our sins. I think we've lost our historical cultural sins. We don't talk about that in America. But they did. And you go year after year after year after year of your horrific, horrible sins, and it's only by the grace of God that you're not being struck down every year. 
and you still allow that one guy in the Day of Atonement that goes in and he's begging, it's no wonder they lost the relationship. They lost the prayer. They lost the, 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 the desire or the, 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 the comfortableness of being able to say the name Yahweh. But they still, the beauty is they didn't lose, that he's still unlike any other God, that he is compassionate. And that's why when you start putting your Bible together, Jesus is it. He bridges the gap. And not just the little picture. The picture is true of Jesus bridging the gap with the cross. But it's so much more powerful than what those lines can demonstrate. And, and that's what we need to do. Look, the more you can put your Bible together the way the author of Hebrews is, the better you can take that well-put-together Bible to the Jew. And let them see. The beauty of a Jew is a lot of them... Some Jews have a, a very deep hatred towards Jesus because of what he represents. When you get into Israel, it becomes a little bit more. Here we don't feel that. But the beauty of the Jew is they acknowledge the Bible as the Word of God. And if you can show them how it's all put together, many of them are like, whoa. And then that's not a guarantee. I know many of you know Jews you've been praying for for a very long time and asking, how much longer, God? But that's what we need to do. We need to help them see this typology. Who else could this possibly be speaking of? And your Day of Atonement is here. And it lives inside of you if you accept the Holy Spirit. And that's the beauty. We should see the disconnect between us and God. But the beauty is Jesus comes and he says, I am your Day of Atonement. I am your Atonement. I am the one that says I can stand in your midst. And you no longer have to cry out. And that's what Hebrews 4 is going to get into because now we can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God. All of us walk right into the Holy of Holies and call Jesus a brother without any fear. That doesn't mean that you don't repent. It doesn't mean that you don't have remorse. It doesn't mean that you don't have shame and guilt for your sins. But it means that that doesn't cut you off from God and make you feel like you can never ever come into His presence again. And that's the beauty of what he does.